It's good to see each one of you here, and I'm so thankful for your presence, and especially we are thankful for all those visitors who come to join us this evening, and uh, we hope that our time will be well spent this week. We're going to be looking at a few lessons, uh, a couple of lessons about the home. We're going to be looking at a lot of lessons about relationships uh, among God's people, and there's a lot of overlap in that because God's people are supposed to be like a family. And so I hope that some of those lessons will, will be effective in both of those realms. But tonight we're going to begin by looking at the subject of uh, marriage. And I hope that the things that we'll have to say tonight about marriage will be something that will be helpful for people who are not married yet. And so it'll be applicable there. And I certainly hope it'll be helpful to those who are married. And those who have been married for many years and you feel like, well, I mean, things are going pretty smoothly. I, I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the sorts of things that we ought to be saying to other people who are looking to get married. I think one of the things that happens sometimes, whether it's marriage or kids or whatever, sometimes people go along in the best way uh, that, they, that they feel they can. They do whatever the path, path of least resistance takes them. And when young people come along and ask for advice, I hear some of the worst advice you can imagine being given to people who are raising children and people who are about to get married. And I think it's because people aren't thinking very deeply. They're certainly not thinking very biblically. And sometimes maybe it's given as a joke or something of that nature. And I understand that. But brethren, when people are looking for advice, we need to be able to give it. <laughs> and we need to be able to give it from God's Word. And we don't need to make light of these relationships. And that's one of the first points I'd like to make is that marriage is not, not only something God doesn't make light of, but it's, it's about uh, as serious a situation as we can get ourselves into on the face of this earth. Uh, God establishes this relationship from the get-go. And as far as the importance of it, you think about creation, where God creates the whole earth and then He creates the one that the earth was made for. Uh, he tells man, when he puts man into the earth, he says, this is for you. I've put, I've put you, this is your dominion, and you rule over it. And it's for you to use for your benefit and for your enjoyment. And so man is like the crowning aspect of creation. And all through that creation, God repeats himself there in chapter 1. It was good, it was good, it was good. And then on the sixth day after he created man... We get into chapter 2 and he says, well, there's one thing that's not good, that man should be alone. And so to crown the crowning achievement, he brings in a companion and he makes this relationship of marriage. And before the marriage uh, is, is even uh, brought into uh, the, the, the way that we see marriage today, before children come into that, before a home is fully established, God is already telling uh, Adam and Eve, and, and of course us through Moses, about how that ought to operate going forward. And so he says in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right here we get another window into the importance of marriage. Here's how important it is. God has a lot to say about honoring your father and mother. He has a lot to say uh, about uh, how that relationship should go to the point that when there is rebellion, that is a sin of capital punishment under the old law. 
right? Stone the rebellious child. And when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees in the New Testament, one of the rebukes that he levies towards them is that they have set aside the command of God. And, and one of the particular commands that he brings out is that command of honor your father and mother. And of course, they did that in order to say, if you'll give your money over here and call it Corban, then you don't have to honor your father and mother. And so it's very important to honor your father and mother. And yet, for marriage, he says, he says a man shall leave his father and mother. That word leave is the same word forsake all through the Old Testament. Turn your back on that relationship. Now, of course, you know, when you look at that, turn your back on your parents, that doesn't mean you don't honor them anymore. We don't want to do what the Pharisees would do with that and, you know, uh, set aside one command of God for another. But what he does mean, I believe, is the same thing that he means when we have a relationship with him. We have a relationship with him. What does that mean? Everybody else comes second. Well, then when you've got a spouse, everybody else comes after that spouse. Not God. He comes before all. But then your spouse is next. And everybody else, including mom and dad, including the home you grew up in, you got a new home. And that home becomes more important than that other. That's one of the things we see about the importance of marriage. Then we see in Matthew chapter 19, the usage that Jesus makes of this very passage. When those uh, uh, Jews would come to him and they would ask about divorce and uh, the dissolution of marriages. And so they say, is it lawful to divorce? And, and Jesus' answer, uh, it says he answered and said, Have you not read that he who, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so they want to know, is it all right to end a marriage? And what's Jesus' answer? Well, his first answer is, No. Right? That's his initial response is, it's not okay to end a marriage. God has established this from the get-go. Go back and read your Bibles. Go back and read the very first chapters of your Bibles. And the first thing that you'll see that God says about this is that he created this relationship. He has joined these two people together and let no man separate. They press him on it a little, little bit. They say, well, what about what Moses said? Moses, because of the hardness of your heart. And as he continues that response in verse 9, he gives this exception. And so he, said, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality or sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So he does give an exception for divorce. And yet even in that, I would suggest to you that it, number one, talk, it, it highlights the importance of marriage. It also highlights the treachery of adultery and how uh, grossly immoral that is. I think we've lost a sense of that in our society, how, how terrible that sin is, that unfaithfulness is. But what he says here when he says that this is the only exception, you just think about all the, all the terrible things that can happen in a marriage. All the reasons that Jesus could have said divorce would be suitable as an option. And he, he doesn't mention any of those. And that means to me, God takes this so very seriously. I, I think about that from the standpoint of how, how marriage has become cheapened. And I think that marriages have always been bad. In other words, there's always been bad marriages, I should say. We just sang a song a moment ago where in verse 2 it says, uh, If advanced in age you be, you may call to memory 
where love is in the home, there's bliss. The, the sentiment of that song is that used to, there, there was more love in homes. That, that may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. Because there were bad marriages back 100 years ago and 200 years ago and all the way back to this time here. There's always been bad marriages. But I will say this. What I do appreciate about the sentiment of this song is this. That used to, in this country at least, we didn't celebrate bad homes. We didn't celebrate lack of love in the home. My mother-in-law talks about growing up in a home where there was chaos, where there were, there were problems in the home. It, it wasn't what's described here. She said, but when we turned on the TV, what we got is pictures of homes where love was. You know, the, the homes that were presented in maybe Father Knows Best or Leave It to Beaver or something like that. She's like, we wanted those homes. <laughs> you know, there was at least a picture up there of something we wanted. And what she also noticed is that there was a, a pressure from society that you stick together. Even when it's not what it ought to be, you stick together. And so we're going to be talking about the ideal. We're going to be talking about what... what should be in the home and what it should look like. But I just want to go ahead from the outset and say that what God says is even if it's not, that's no excuse to quit. That, that the marriage is supposed to be uh, the supreme of all earthly relationships. The supreme of all earthly relationships. And he would use it to illustrate even his own relationship with us as we see in Ephesians chapter 5. And so let's turn over there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And so we're going to talk about husbands and wives, and I'm going to talk about wives and their role and their responsibilities first, but that's so that I can hit, aim it back at me towards the end. I think that's a fair way to do things, right? You, you, you end talking towards yourself. I'll try to leave time for that so that we'll have plenty of time to... To, to take aim in that direction. But at any rate, chapter 5 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But just as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands uh, in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Well, at the outset, I just make a couple of observations. And the first is this. It is intriguing. This is kind of a side note, but it's intriguing that, that Paul says in verse 32, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. It sounds to me like he's speaking about marriage and Christ and the church is the sidebar, but he says Christ and the church is the main issue and marriage is the sidebar. 
And I think that what we need to understand is that our, our marriages ought to reflect something greater. Um, in our homes, we are raising our children to learn what the word father means. And I wonder when they get old enough to know more about who their heavenly father is, if that word will mean something special to them or something that they will have to relearn to a great degree. It, it ought to be something that, that brings a sense of warmth, that brings a sense of comfort to know that we have a heavenly father. And if we're not raising them with, uh, with that in mind, then they may have a, a, a terrible re-education. Now, I understand we're not going to be perfect parents. I, I get that. But we ought to reflect the characteristics of our Heavenly Father so that they can appreciate all those illustrations that they begin to read. God's using that language because it ought to be familiar to us in a good way. Well, can I likewise say that our marriages ought to reflect something greater and that husbands ought, ought to be looking towards that example and wives looking towards that example. And again, our children... Um, as well as others, should be able to see the glory of Christ, not only in our personal individual lives, but in the, in the life of our marriage. But the other thing that I would note here as we begin to turn our attention uh, specifically towards wives is this, that the commands are, are very different. The instruction to a wife and the instruction to a husband here, they are not identical. And so uh, where we are very wont to turn our attention to the subject of love and seeing particularly about love being in the home and love is of fundamental importance. And I don't want to for a moment to say that husbands have, or wives have no responsibility to love their husbands. They're commanded that as well in other places. But he goes throughout here and he presses not on wives love your husbands, but wives submit and be subject. And as he concludes and as he sort of wraps up in verse 33, he sums it all up in saying this, husbands love your wives, but wives see to it, see to it that she respects her husband. And I think that is far too often overlooked, uh, that those are parallel that here's the, the primary responsibility, the, the thing that the husband most needs to communicate to his wife is, I love you. Does that mean he doesn't need to respect her? No. But communicating love is more important for the husband to do than the respect. And then for the wife, the most important thing she needs to communicate to her husband is respect. Now, she needs to love her husband, of course, but this is even more important than that. And I think for a lot of women, that, that just might blow their minds. I'm, I'd a lot rather know that somebody loves me than that they respect me. Exactly. That's why God told the man to make sure you know that. But for a man, it's more important that I feel respected than I feel loved even. And I think that that's maybe even a wake-up call to men sometimes, but it's certainly very often a wake-up call for some women. And some women might say, oh, well, that's just... That's just his pride. Well, it's, it's actually, I think, something that God put within us. I mean, that's we are created with a sense of protectiveness, with a sense of leadership, and, and we want to feel trusted, and we want to feel that people have confidence in us and that we're not being second-guessed and questioned all the time. And that's, that's a good thing in a leader. Right? And so you want to promote that and you want to help that. 
And, and so you say, yes, but maybe a woman says, yes, but I, I feel a need for this. Yeah, so that's what God supplied for the woman. And so how, how does a woman uh, take on that role? Well, the idea behind the word subject or submit and, and the word respect, um, I think there are a number of different ways that we can illustrate that. The word submit, it's a military word. And it's to arrange yourself in order underneath. And I, I've, I'm not in the military. I've got a lot of friends who've been in or are in the military. And, and there's some things that I understand from talking to them and, and from reading a lot of um, historical works and especially uh, military history as far as how the military works. And one of the things that you find in the military, and some of you who have been in the military may, may have discovered this, is that the person who's in charge is not always the smartest guy in the room. And it's maybe a shocker to some of you, but, but the guy who's in charge may not know everything, but he's still in charge because somebody's got to be. And the military doesn't run as a democracy and it's chaos if it does. And so there's ranks, right? And it's not about the value of a, of a man, and it's not the value of a person, and it doesn't mean that he, he uh, knows more or is more important to you. Maybe in some ways the, the um, people might view more important because of rank, but, but as far as value as a person, that doesn't come into it. Somebody's got to answer for this. It's a role of responsibility. And so then they arrange themselves underneath that. And one of the things I also recognize about that is the people who are underneath their commanding officer, they're supposed to take up their issues with the commanding officer. And one of the things you don't want to do is go uh, being subversive to your commanding officer and going and talking bad about him to other people. you got a problem with him, you take it to him. You go up the chain, as they say. And so that's how that works. And one of the most horrible things that can happen, and you, especially if you read some old Navy history, one of the worst things that can happen is mutiny. Now, I'll just say, there are times a mutiny has to happen. But the military is so keen on keeping that from happening that there are very few reasons they will let you off the hook if you find yourself participating in a mutiny. And I find that that's much the same with God. There may be an exception. There may be a reason that God says, okay, for this, I'll allow mutiny. But there's not many reasons I'll allow for it. I've got an order that's in place. And we have chaos if we don't keep that order in place. But in addition to that, what you want, if you are in that sort of a situation, you want the guy who's in charge to be successful because... You're under his care, right? He's the one who is taking responsibility for your life. And as a husband, that's the role you take on. You take on the role of being the protector and being responsible for all those under your care, whether it be your wife or your children or, or anybody else who's under your care. Servants would also fall into that category as we continue to read here. And so basically, you're responsible for what happens to these people. And so as a wife, you want to support that. And you want to hold that up. The other aspect there is in uh, the word respect. And that is the word fear. 
And in fact, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, in, in so many places it gets translated fear until we get to this context and it gets translated respect. And I think I understand why. I mean, it doesn't sound as palatable to say a wife should fear her husband. But it's the same language, it's the same word when it says we should fear God and keep His commandments and that servants ought to fear their masters. Um, but it, t- it comes down to a degree, right? It comes down to, uh, the, from the standpoint of obviously we don't fear, wives shouldn't fear their husbands at the same level they fear God. And it's not necessarily identical to the sort of um, mindset that a servant would have towards his master, but there's some similarity there, right? You fear him from the standpoint of you respect, and so it is a good translation after all. And I do believe that that really is, is, uh, is the notion here, is that idea of I respect that you're the one who's taken on the role of responsibility. You're the one who's leading in this case. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that a wife can never advise? That a wife can never state her opinion and things of that nature? Well, I think only the most foolish of leaders don't listen to the people who are around about them. And in fact, what I I consider is that my wife is my closest advisor. That she's the one I trust above all other advisors. And, and, I, and I put a great deal of stock in what she has to say to me. And somebody says, well, what if, what if my husband doesn't listen? Then he's a fool. And he'll answer for that. But it's not your job to go start a mutiny because he's a fool. You see, God doesn't give you that right. But, but if he's a, a wise husband, he will be listening. And you do put in your advice. But you'll find that advice is best listened to by leaders when it's asked for. And so what Peter says is if you want to open that door, and let's turn over there to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and there in verse 1, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So he says, if you've got a husband who is not doing what he ought to, you stay after him until he does. No, that isn't what it says. It says, I tell you what, you behave in a way that shows him you still respect him as your husband. And that's your best chance. That's your best shot at being able to reach him. I think of this from the standpoint of Romans chapter 13 where, where Paul tells us to be subject to the governing authorities. What if the governing authorities are fools? Can you imagine being under a governing authority where there are fools in charge? I, I, I've heard that it happens. I, I've heard that it was happening when Paul wrote those words. 
And he said, you subject yourself to those fools. To those people who are not respectful of God, who don't care about the things you care to, you subject yourselves to them. And generally speaking, that's going to work out best for you and everybody who will follow that advice. And so, so he gives us the pattern. You show that respect. You, you advocate for them. Here's an, uh, you know, there's a, an old phrase that, that gets tossed around. We don't, we don't talk out of school. We don't undermine the authority. One of the things that, that my wife has said to me over the years is, is that when, when she has gotten together with a group of ladies sometimes, the spigot gets opened and it's time to subvert the authority of the husbands. And everybody talks about what rotten leaders they have in their homes. And it's not that Amy doesn't have stories to tell. She just knows that those are not stories that, that's not the place for those stories. She brings that to me. And we have conversations about that. And so, uh, you know, what we need to do is to keep that, that submissive aspect in mind and not, not attach it to the standpoint of the, him being a good husband. And here's the real key going back to Ephesians chapter 5 when it talks about the respect due to the husband, the subjection due to the husband. I think we need to think of it in terms of like, like the governing authorities. It's not that you show it to him if he earns it. Now, it'll be easier if he earns it. Everybody's on board with unconditional love. Not many people are on board with unconditional respect. But I think that's what Paul commands here. Is the same sort of same sort of love that he's supposed to be showing to her, that's the sort of respect that she ought to be showing to him. And what if what if it, what if he doesn't deserve it? Well, what if you don't deserve the love? You still want it? Well, he may not deserve the respect, but he still wants it. And it's, as Peter says, it's your best chance to have a happy marriage even when he's not doing the best thing he can to earn that respect. Well, moving on then to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. How great a love should it be? So great as the love that Christ had when He gave Himself for the church. There is no boundary to the greatness of the love that, that God calls us to, to show to our, our wives. Absolutely self-sacrificing love. Lay down your life for her. I think there are some husbands who would lay down their lives for their wives from the standpoint of if, if an invader came into the house they would put their lives on the line to protect their wives. But they wouldn't do the dishes if she needed her to. You know, lay down your life. Now look, I'd die for her, but I'm not going to pick up my laundry. And I just, I just wonder if we're, if we're really getting a good picture. You know, it's like we think we would go to the extreme but we won't do it on an everyday basis. We won't show her that we care about her and that, that we, we want her to have joy. We want to bring joy to our life. When we think about the way Christ loved us, there are so many passages that come to mind. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So He loved us when we were imperfect. And, uh, and so sometimes we're going to find that there are men who have imperfect wives. I'm sure there are none of those here tonight, but they do exist. And you've got to show love all the same. And you show the kindness even when she's not showing you kindness. But can I, can I suggest some more difficult areas in which I find that Jesus is um, illustrates that perfect love? One is over in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And there in verse 15 and 16. For we do not have, he says, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all points as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later in the week as we talk about the love of God, but consider the notion that Christ puts Himself in our shoes. He sympathizes with us. He, in in a very literal way, put Himself in our shoes, coming down to live as a man and go through all of the, the difficulties and all the temptations. And notice this, He did it with total success. Now, if I go through something with total success and I look at somebody else going through the same thing with failure, generally that's going to breed in me not sympathy but maybe arrogance. But in here it says for Christ, it's sympathy that he has as a result. He looks at the temptations you're going through and that you're a failure at those temptations and instead of lording that over you and saying, well, what's your problem? I was able to do it, which I think is the attitude husbands take to their wives sometimes because... You know, there are physical differences and uh, maybe we wonder why she's not toughening up or something like that. And and he says, no, he sympathizes and he appreciates the difficulty. And so we end up with somebody who's on our side as a result of that. He puts himself in our shoes and so we can come to him and know that we've got somebody who appreciates the difficulties. I think when Peter instructs the husbands back over there in chapter 3, he instructs the husbands to live with your wife in, a, in an understanding way. Somebody says, well, how do you understand the mind of a woman? Well, let me just say, she's asking the same thing about your mind, right? Because it's, they are very different minds, and, and for good reason, and for good result, right? God didn't say, man needs a companion, let me make another one of those. I mean, I make something very different from that to what he says. And something that will be complementary to that, he says. And so, we need to try to be understanding, which means to some degree we need to try to put ourselves in her shoes. And we need to be having conversations with our wives that help us to understand and appreciate uh, where they're coming from. But let me add to that over in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, and in verse 1, Jesus is described this way. My little children, he says, I'm writing to you these things. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That idea of being an advocate. You need to be your wife's advocate. And I want to suggest you need to be that in so many ways. Husbands and wives, you need to be your spouse's advocate. 
going back to the, the, the first thing that we looked at, leave father and mother, you need to be an advocate to your family on behalf of your spouse. Because your family, they may not like that you've left the family. And they may think, oh, it's that one's fault over there. I remember this lady one time uh, saying, I heard her say, early in our marriage, there was some friction between her husband and her parents, and they didn't approve of him in so many ways, his job choices and, and different things along the way. And he always felt an inferiority to, to them, and he felt his wife approved of that, uh, that attitude coming from her parents. And she finally stood up one day and she said, I am on your side. And I will always take your side in these kind of situations. And we will go to my parents and I will tell them, this is my husband and I'm on his side and I'm here to support him in, what, in the choices he's making. And of course, we're not talking about into sin and so forth. Legitimate choices you support. And the same thing with, with husbands uh, to their parents. And so a lot of times there'll be some jealousies that come into place. And one of the things that I tell young couples when they're about to get married and we're going through that marriage counseling, I say, listen, first time Thanksgiving comes up, everybody's going to be upset because we've always had Thanksgiving together and nobody's taken into consideration that a new family's been formed. And you're going to have to talk to your parents and you're going to have to talk to your parents. And don't make the other one do it. You advocate for them. You advocate for them to other people as well. We ought to be saying good things about speaking well about our spouses as, uh, as we see that notion of the activity of the wife in uh, Proverbs 31 causing the husband to be spoken well of. And then they in return, the children and the husband, call her blessed. That ought to be going on. But here's the most important place we ought to be advocating to, for our wives, and that is to ourselves. Because that's really what Jesus is doing. We stand guilty before God. And so who does God send as the advocate? Well, He sends Himself. You cannot do better than to have God as your advocate when you stand before God the judge. And so God makes the case for us when we cannot make it for ourselves. And I think sometimes men will say things and they just think that their wives are being so ridiculous and so absurd because their wives do not think like they do and, and they just wish their wives were like men and, and really they don't. They don't know what they're wishing for. They don't wish that. But in a moment we think that. We think, why, why can't she you know, reason like a man? Why can't she think like a man? But when we were dating her, we would have taken up for her to anybody who questioned what she thought and what, what she said. We, we would have taken her side against all comers. But we forget all that. And we begin to think that she's this unreasoning creature who was... Who was are everything at some point and now has become somebody we toss aside so easily. One of the things that I, I, I try to get husbands to do when there's problems is I say, if somebody else were saying about your wife what you're saying about your wife, 
What would you tell them? So, well, now I wouldn't take it from somebody else. Well, then don't take it from yourself. You know, we do that with our family sometimes. We, we berate and we ridicule and we say all sorts of horrible things. And if anybody else dared say something like that to one of our family members, we would say, those are fighting words. You don't talk about my family. Now, I ain't talk about my family like that. But you don't talk to my family about, about my family like that. I think we need to be like God and be an advocate for the one we're frustrated with. And particularly, that needs to be the case when it comes to our spouse. That we need to make the best case for them. One other thing that Peter says there over in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 is he says that we are to remember that we are fellow heirs. That is, especially those who are married, who are Christians. You look at that person and say, that's a sister in Christ over there. And a lot of men talk about their wives like they don't trust them. In which case, I say, why did you marry him? I mean, I say the same thing to women. You know, I say, I don't want to submit to him. Then why did you marry him? And, and maybe you didn't know that that was part of the bargain. There's some of the advice for people getting married. Understand what you're getting into. Some man will say, yeah, but you don't understand. My wife, is com- she really is unreasonable. There are. There are women who are unreasonable. You took that on. You said, I want to take responsibility for that. It's yours. And now you get to show all the love that you can for that for the rest of your life. I hope you choose well. But that's the kind of love, that's the degree of love that we ought to show. If you're having marriage problems, I would encourage you to look at one more illustration when it comes to God and marriage. If we go back to the book of Hosea. Whatever marriage troubles you're having, they don't match these, most likely. Most likely, if you were having these, you'd have just called it quits, and you you would be justified in calling it quits even. God does not, and we are thankful for it. For when we are unfaithful to Him, as Paul tells Timothy, He remains faithful. And that is illustrated in the book of Hosea. And if you're not familiar with that book, what happens is God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And so he does. He has children with that prostitute. She goes and gets herself caught up into slavery. It is implied at least. He calls on uh, Hosea to go and buy her back out of slavery and bring her home again and again and again. And in chapter 2 and verse 14, he talks about, he, he has a love song. It's God singing this love song toward Israel. And God is the husband and she is the the wife. And he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And I will give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor is a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me as she and no longer call me Baali. Just an explanation there. Those are two words for husband, and the first one is a word that has more sentiment to it and more uh, more affection, whereas the second is merely sort of master. And so he says, I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth so that they will 
be mentioned by their names no more. And that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land and make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you. And here's the really area where I want to focus. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then you will know the Lord. To begin with, just note what he says about alluring her and, and speaking kindly to her. And this sort of language of showing affection in all these ways to a wife who is utterly unfaithful. And I am struck and convicted that I do not do enough of this to a wife who is so very faithful to me. But here God says, I'll do it to a wife who is unfaithful. I need to do more of that. But maybe you are particularly having struggles. Notice what God says He will do. I will betroth you to me. What is betrothal? Well, that is, that is what comes at the beginning of marriage. In fact, comes right before marriage. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I think what He's saying is, I'll... I'll I'll go back to the beginning with you. If, if you're struggling in your marriage, can you, remember, can you remember why you got married? Can you remember what you felt like and what you saw in that person and why you pursued that person and why you asked them to marry you and, or why you said yes to the person who asked you to marry them? And God says, we'll go back there. I think that's a beautiful thing. I mean, we... We hang our hats on the fact that God says we can go back to the beginning. As many times as we need, He'll let us go back to the beginning. Can I suggest you can too in your marriage? That you can recall those days. That's what He says. I think that's what He alludes to right at the beginning. Bring her into the wilderness. That's where God began His relationship with Israel. was back there in the wilderness. So let's go back and let's remember what it was like. What sort of things would I have said about my wife then Sam again? What sort of things would I have said about my husband then Sam again? And keep saying those things and keep calling back what brought you together in the first place and what would have brought you to say, I am yours in the first place. And maintain and hold on to that all of your days. And even if it's just one of you doing it, because in the book of Hosea, it's just God. And he says, I'll keep doing it as long as I can. And so I hope that those are some helpful thoughts to you about marriage. It is, it is a high calling. It is one that, that calls us to great degrees of patience and understanding. It calls us to a great degree of honesty and humility. I said that we should be our, our spouse's advocate. I think one of the patterns we could use for that is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, love her like you love your own body. Most men, and, and women too, will put the best spin on what they're doing. Right? Whatever you say and whatever you do, 
you'll put the best spin on that possible. If somebody were to, if your wife comes to you and says, I can't believe you said that. Look, all I meant was, right, you'd, you'd explain it in the best possible light. Do that for each other. Right? And so, so give them the same sort of um, appreciation, the same sort of uh, benefit of the doubt that you would give yourself and that you would want given to you. But all of that, as Paul says, is reflective of a, a greater truth. And that is that God has loved you with greater love than any husband has ever shown his wife. Or that any wife has ever shown her husband. Have you ever seen a, a marriage relationship where one side is giving it everything they got and the other's just shutting it down left and right? Does it make you sick? It does. It's pitiful. And it just it, it makes you disgusted with that person. Well, God is that faithful husband right now. And there may be those who are just shutting him down. And what Hosea shows us is it's a disgusting picture. And yet there he is with his arms open saying, I'm still here. I hope there wouldn't be someone this evening who would turn down that kind of opportunity for a relationship even greater than the love that you can have in, in the best marriage that you could ever imagine. And if you're not in that relationship, then we call you to it this evening. We hope that you might respond while we stand and while we sing.